Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we love bringing this content to you for free and we want to keep going. Your support helps make that happen. So please go hit that subscribe button today. It really makes a difference. Okay, on to the episode. Bringing home a new pet should be one of the happiest days of your life. But for one family, that day became nothing short of a nightmare. They had chosen the perfect puppy and counted down the days until they could go and pick her up from the airport. The happy pup was put into her crate and onto the plane ready to meet her new family. All seemed fine, but things were about to take an alarming turn. So the puppy gets off the plane. The folks are there to meet it, the new owners, and they're all excited. And the puppy is just flat out in the crate, and they immediately just grab the dog and come straight to the vet clinic. You can imagine they're frantic. We grab the puppy, and this is one of those times you just run it to the back, right into our treatment area. And right away, we do pretty much what was wrong with the pup. And I can't tell you without being really gross, but I'll be gross. It smelled like Parvo. That's Dr. Kelly Deal, the doctor who was there to treat the puppy, which she and her team quickly determined was sick with parvovirus, a serious illness that requires a huge amount of precautions and care. Parvovirus is a virus, obviously, that belongs to the Parvoviridae family. And parvo means tiny. So they're actually small viruses, and there are lots of parvoviruses. There are parvoviruses in people, there are parvoviruses in cats, and your cat gets vaccinated for it. And it is believed that the strain of canine parvovirus that causes all the problems we see arose actually from a mutation in the feline parvovirus back in 1978. And since that time, you know, it's mutated a little bit. It's out there. It's super hardy in the environment. And it is not susceptible to a lot of our disinfectants. And when these pups come in, they have to be isolated from the general population. We put on our bunny suits and gloves and we step in bleach when we go in and out. So it's a pretty serious management problem for veterinary clinics. The amount of work it would take to care for this puppy never deterred Dr. Deal or her colleagues. They went straight to work tending to the pet, but this wasn't a minor concern. The puppy was struggling, and the doctors raced to figure out what was going on. It is dehydrated. It is weak. Got low blood pressure. I mean, this puppy is in really, really, really serious condition. And we get an IV line in. It just highlighted to everyone in our practice, and we saw a fair number of dogs with parvovirus, how serious this disease can be. It's super serious. This puppy, she was in her own ward, and we had an isolation ward, right, for pets with infectious disease. You can't put another dog in there. So if you have another infectious disease or a cat, you have to set up another ward for them. And you have to be super careful. We would often have a dedicated nurse that would only deal with a patient in isolation, right? We're trying really, really hard because you can carry parvovirus on your shoes and on your hands and on your clothes. And again, it's super hardy in the environment, which requires a lot of being careful. Like that puppy had its own garbage can, right? For cleaning stuff because we could not 
take any chances that somebody would just inadvertently take the garbage, right, and maybe touch something and then go handle even an outpatient. Again, they're really, really big management problems, which is why a lot of people refer them. It may not be something you want to deal with in your own practice. And the treatment is only supportive. So we don't have any specific antiviral drugs that work super well in parvovirus. So you're basically giving them fluids, right? You're giving them antibiotics. We gave this dog because it was losing proteins through its gut. We were giving plasma transfusions, which is kind of a big deal. Some of these dogs, you don't like to put feeding tubes in them, but you have to give them anti-vomiting drugs because they're usually vomiting. You want to try to get nutrition on board as quickly as you can. Dr. Deal and her team worked fast. And luckily, this story has a happy ending. After a couple days in the hospital, the puppy trotted off with its new owners and went on to do very well. But that outcome was far from guaranteed. These days, parvovirus is treatable, but when it first reared its head, it was a scary time for pets and pet parents. When parvovirus first hit in 1978, people had no idea what was happening. It was, if you could think of COVID, but with like a 75% mortality rate, animals were dying, people were frantic, and Cornell University, because they had one of the first big animal virus groups, were getting bodies shipped to them from veterinarians going, can you please figure out what's going on? And Cornell started to put together a collaborative group, which included Morris Animal Foundation, to provide emergency funding like, hey, we're having a crisis, we need some funding. And Morris jumped in and helped with Funding that not only helped identify, hey, this is a virus, it's a parvovirus, and also helped with the development of the first vaccine. Because once people knew what it was, they were pretty quick to start developing the vaccine. So when I see my parvo puppies and that puppy that came off the plane, I am directly intersecting with Morris Animal Foundation and their legacy When Dr. Deal treated that puppy getting off the plane, she was in private practice, but she was able to treat the dog because of the work Morris Animal Foundation and its partners had done years earlier. Today, Dr. Deal is helping lead Morris Animal Foundation as it works to help vets and researchers uncover the secrets to treating pets and understanding how to keep them healthy. After the break, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Deal to give us more insights into the work she's doing and to learn more about how we as pet parents can keep our animals healthy. While training my puppy Teddy, I've been using a few kinds of treats. By far, his favorites are blue sizzlers. These bacon-style treats are made with real USA pork as the first ingredient, and wow, does Teddy love them. And I do too, because they're easy to tear into small pieces for training. If you're looking to up your treat game, get Blue Sizzlers wherever you buy pet treats. And don't forget to download the Buddies app to earn points on your purchases. If I'm just like normal everyday pet parent, you know, in my Buddies app, in my pet's timeline, what should I be keeping track of like for my pet's health? Like, you know, if, you know, 10 years from now, I have this timeline of my pet's health that could be helpful. Are there things I should be tracking that maybe... I'm not tracking, you know, obviously my pet's weight, activity level, that kind of thing. Anything else? Exposures for sure. The study at University of Wisconsin-Madison is being done by a friend of mine for like 30 years. And she's hilarious because she goes, 
if you see the lawn that there's not a weed in, don't let your dog walk on that lawn. You know, don't get exposed to it. If it if you're walking your dog in a park, and we all do this, like sometimes we're in the park and it's like football fields or baseball fields. I have a park near us that's also doubles for baseball and football and you know, stuff like that. And it's pristine. Probably shouldn't be letting the dog walk on it, right? Or be exposed to it. So I think exposures are really, really important. You know, bringing your dog inside if your neighbor's doing something. I live in a neighborhood where people are pretty open to not doing it. And um, we've really, as a people around me are much more aware of it, of like, this could cause problems for my neighbor's dog in the backyard next door to me, even if I don't have one. And knowing that, and sometimes just pulling your pet inside is important. So exposures are super, super important. Travel history is very important because there are different diseases in different areas of the country and they can take a while to brew. And your vet, like if I'm out here in Colorado, there are diseases I would not think to ask you about. So knowing your dog's travel history and offering it to your vet, if they're, if your pet is sick and saying, you know, we were in the Southeast a few months ago visiting Alabama. Is that important? Or Arizona where Valley Fever in certain areas of California is that important? Because otherwise your pet can be misdiagnosed or you don't look for it, right? Because it would be, maybe it's an expensive test and you would never just run it without some indication. And it's not always on top of people's minds that your pet has traveled. So keeping a really good close track on your pet's travel is important. And if you're going to travel with your pet, make sure you know what diseases are in that area. Because for example, here in Colorado, we do not have a problem with Lyme disease mm-hmm. at all. Yep. But we might if we took our pet to... To where uh, I live in here in New York. <laughs> where right. we get ticks everywhere. <laughs> right. That's important for people, I think, to know. And we just totally space it, right? When we're going places. Like we don't have a huge tick and flea problem. And again, I'm knocking on wood here in Colorado. But my dog is on preventive because if she travels, which she does with us sometimes, she may be traveling to an area. So knowing all of that is super important. Tracking Your vet usually tracks vaccines, but it's important for you to know, too, to have an idea of that. So those are all things I think are really important for people to monitor. There are some really good, for people who are getting pets that are getting older, like mine, my dog, there are instruments out there that are cognitive tests to kind of keep an eye, like, is my dog just showing these really subtle signs of cognitive declines. Because just like in people, we can't always stop dementia, but we can slow it down, right? And there are things you can do for your dog and your cat to slow mental declines. And those are important to know. Like what? What can you do? Puzzles. (laughs) Food puzzles. Everybody should be eating from a food puzzle. My cats only eat from food puzzles. Wow. So they have to work to get their food. My dog will, she loves them and she gets good at them. They're pretty easy, right? Because you can just load them up (laughs) and do them. Like playing with your animals is important. Like playing, um, especially hunting games with cats. So like the little little toys, even as they get older and you think they don't care, they actually do. And it helps keep their minds sharp. Taking dogs on sniffing walks 
which can be pretty boring for the person walking them, but allowing them to sniff and not going, okay, you're done. You know, let's keep going. I started doing that in the last year. I just like let him lead me and be like, sniff wherever you want to sniff. Right. Do your thing. Right. And doing that is really, those are all really, really important things. All dogs can learn new tricks and probably teaching them things as they get older, even if they're silly little tricks, teaching them those behaviors actually also helps keep their mind going a bit. Those are just some really simple, easy things. And it's easy, again, with older pets to think that they don't want to do it. And sometimes they're they're sore, they have arthritis, and so they're going to poop out a little bit earlier. Cats too. Cats do get arthritis. That's really something we forget. And probably they get it more than dogs do. So if anyone's listening, there's a 90% chance your cat over seven years of age has arthritis. And that's going to limit maybe their mobility a bit, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be allowed to just kind of vegetate in a corner, like do things with them. And even if they poop out right after a few minutes. So those are all really, really important things. And not doing something if they seem painful. That's another thing is monitoring for pain or discomfort in your in your pet because it's much more likely they're got that than any other disease is arthritis and it limits their mobility and then they slow down. And then I think we all know older people who get arthritis and they slow down and then they don't do things right because it hurts or it's hard and then their mentation changes and it's that same spiral in cats and dogs. So for pet parents listening, talk to us about why the work that you're doing is so unique and so important to the health of their pets. Right. Well, we're one of the few places that people who want to explore a particular disease that's affecting pets, they can come to us and get money. They can submit a grant proposal. Most of the places we fund are vet schools, not surprisingly. And we're one of the few places that do that. There are other funding agencies, but a lot of them are sort of human health based and they'll fund a animal health study, but only if it has implications for human health, which is fine. Um, That's great. But there are diseases that affect animals that have no human health analog. And then that money is not available to people. Diseases in wildlife that are outside conservation, there's no other place or very, very few places that will fund health studies. And we do that. Same with horses. They're just very limited funding buckets. Horses are not great models for human diseases in general. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the horse people often tell us, you're one of the few places we can go to, to get money to study diseases that really affect just horses. Yeah. It's so important. And I know a lot of the work you're doing, especially some, some of the recent work you're doing is around pet cancer and treatment for that. So talk to us about the research process and and how a research project works and then what the ultimate end goal is to like help treat pets and, you know, help pet parents in the real world every single day. Right. So what we get from folks is they'll come to us with an idea and they'll submit a proposal. And it can be everything from, we're going to look at cancer cells in a Petri dish, 
right? And we're going to throw different drugs at them. (laughs) Or we want to know how they work because we want to develop new drugs. Like, how is this cancer growing? We have a few that are like that. And then we have other ones that come to us and say, hey, we have an experimental drug and we want to use it. We have a couple like this right now in dogs with cancer and we're funding a clinical trial. So that's after the Petri dish portion of the program, right? right? Where they're a little (laughs) further on. Or there are some people who are like, this drug is being used in people for this cancer and we think we want to do it and we want to test it out. So we may fund a clinical trial, which actually has real world implications, right? If we're funding, we're often subsidizing people coming and getting treatment or diagnostic tests. And those are interesting studies. They're often harder to do because they're not as clean, right, as cells in a Petri dish. But we have a few of those as well. That's the whole spectrum of things that we would be looking at. Sometimes we'll fund diagnostic test development. And we have a few studies. So it's basically diagnosis and treatment are tend to be the two big arms with basic biology somewhere in the middle there. And a lot of people will go, you know, I think I found something in the blood of dogs with cancer, but I need some help maybe developing this idea a little more. And this dovetails with our Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which is this enormous study that we're funding where we're following dogs for their lifetime. And we have several studies that are part of that big study. They're like little nested studies. So people have come to us and they've asked for, in particular, samples from dogs that develop cancer. But because we collect samples on dogs for years and years and years, we have those super valuable samples like two years before I develop cancer or three years before I develop cancer or one year And at the time of diagnosis, and people are really interested in, is there something in the blood that changes? Right, the progression of it. Right, that could give us a clue that this dog is on its way to develop cancer because that's sort of one of the first steps is if we can detect it early, can we treat it early? Are there different things we can do to these individuals and maybe have a better success, right? With, I mean, you you hear from us all the time, right? Early detection is important. It's why we have colonoscopies every 10 years, right? After we're a certain age, or we get mammograms or whatever, because we know that picking up cancer early is really a key to successful treatment and possibly curative treatment. So tell me about some of the success stories that Morris Animal Foundation has had, some of the studies that have produced results that maybe you don't even realize are because of Morris Animal Foundation. Right. So we talked about Parvo. We have a similar story with cats, which is feline leukemia virus, which we helped develop one of the first vaccines. We funded a researcher who said, hey, I want to look at this really peculiar virus, right? It's a cancer-causing virus. I mean, people have known about it since the 60s. And especially in the 70s and 80s, we were really interested in trying to fund people to come up with a vaccine. And it has been wildly successful. And if you have a cat, if you have a cat that goes outside, (laughs) for sure, your cat has probably received a feline leukemia virus vaccine. And in fact, it has, that's one success story. Probably millions of cats have avoided cancer diagnosis because of that vaccine. And in fact, when I talk to friends who are oncologists, they say, we talk about feline cancers in terms of 
pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. It just completely changed the landscape for cat cancers. It doesn't mean cats don't get cancer, because they do, but it just completely changed the types of cancers that are seen and wiped out really a lot of different really horrible cancers that we barely see anymore, especially in young cats, because that's where feline leukemia virus strikes. Young cats, they're dying by the time of five, they're five years of age from cancer. So we see cancers in cats, but again, they're really, really, really different. Another one in horses was a disease that started cropping up in the 80s called, it's now called Potomac horse fever. It, it was a really, really deadly infectious disease of horses. And once again, because we're one of the few funding agencies, we got our finger in that pie too pretty early and did a lot of work in funding the research that helped identify the organism, which then in turn, of course, led to led to treatment and vaccination for that particular one. So those are some biggies. Other ones are guys by kidney diet. And especially during the 90s, there were a lot of tweaks done to the cat kidney diets. We funded some researchers and academics who said, you know what, we need to tweak this. Like these diets are not quite doing what we need them to do. And you funded a lot of research in the 90s that really refined, in particular, the cat kidney diets. And we know that kidney disease in cats, chronic kidney disease is like the top probably disease of older cats. They almost all, it's almost the final terminal pathway for all old cats. And so knowing better how to nutritionally manage those makes a difference long-term. So those are some ones that pop to my mind off the, off the top of my head. I'm hoping that we're going to make some advances with the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. We've added a little bit to the conversation about when you should spay and neuter your dog. And that was a big, um, was a big publication that we did a few years ago using the, the study data to support some things people had been saying out there about when to do large dogs in particular. And we were able to really support that with data that say, yeah, yeah, we're finding exactly what you guys are seeing. And our data is super strong to support your recommendations on older dogs or large breed dogs being older, right, when you spay and neuter them. How old should they be? Like, what was the conclusion? Well, the conclusion from that was probably over six months of age, at least for golden retrievers. And that was out there for large breed dogs. Like, it should be six months, maybe a year. But nobody, it had all been based on retrospective data instead of prospective, which is really stronger data. And we were able to show that. The other thing we were able to show is something that people have thought about for a long time, which is about obesity and overweight. In dogs that are spayed and neutered, and everybody probably is that, ah, if you spay or neuter your dog, they're going to get fat. Well, the reality was, at least in our cohort, that does happen. Spayed and neutered at any time. It didn't matter what age they were. So it's something that people, the recommendation is, you know, you got to be more diligent with watching weight in young dogs that are spayed and neutered. And maybe think about it earlier because we also know by keeping weight from getting on your dog, and it happens to all of us with our dogs as they get older, but avoiding that when they're young, it's much better than trying to take weight off of them later in life. Um, if they stay lean through their, through their younger years, and it may be changing diets much earlier than you think. 
my dog Teddy is going through something right now. What is it, you ask? It's the True Blue Effect, which is all the benefits your dog could experience from the key ingredients in Blue Life Protection Formula. I'm talking healthy coat, strong bones, muscle development, immune system health, great digestion, strong joints, and lots and lots of energy. Try the Blue Life Protection Formula now and see if your dog benefits from the True Blue Effect. I actually had the opposite problem with my dog, Ozzy. He he was never like overweight he was always pretty healthy and just in like the last year he he just wasn't enjoying his diet anymore he was losing weight so i had to change his diet around you know which we were not expecting like out of the blue and so that was like a huge thing that we had to go through and we had to figure out the right situation for him because he's got his own issues with his like livers and his he's an older dog so yeah it's it's hard and pet parents i think are always worried about their pet's health and what they could be doing and what they should be looking for and what are some of the signs and what are the things they should worry about and all of these things. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, like, what are the main things that pet parents should be concerned about, like baselines? Well, definitely wait, because we know from studies that are done every year that pet obesity is becoming a bigger problem over, I think the latest are like 54, 55% of dogs in the United States are overweight. It's like 60% for cats and with all the problems. So they can have obesity and then it's bad on their legs and their feet, just like our joints, dogs' joints cat's joints. It's all, it's all. So that would be, if I had to pick something, that is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest problems that we see. Another thing that we're getting into more is behavior, actually. And it's across the board in dogs, cats, and horses. We have turned our focus into behavior also as a welfare and well-being issue for animals. And that's from a bunch of different perspectives. We know that behavior problems are a big reason animals are relinquished to shelters. It may be one of the number one reasons, right? It is a reason animals are brought back to shelters sometimes when they're adopted. And it is also a problem, it's going to sound crazy, in horses as well. It doesn't sound crazy. I'm an equestrian. I've been riding pretty much my whole life. So I'm, I know about horses and their behavior issues. And vices, right? <laughs> we call them vices yep. and we say this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a big push. And at the foundation, we've done a lot of work in funding studies the last few years, really looking at welfare issues associated with behavior. And how can we by maybe understanding behavior better, by understanding cognitive declines that happen, especially in dogs and cats, that what can we do, first of all, to intervene? We can't make them do Sudokus, but there are things you can do <laughs> that actually keep their minds going. Yeah, And it's the same in, in horses as well, because then they, they become welfare issues right? And and well-being. And we want to do the right thing for our pets. But we've imposed a lot of really abnormal behavior. Like keeping cats indoors has a lot of benefits, right? And you'll hear arguments from people who are concerned about wildlife. I mean, I think we've probably all seen those those things about how many birds and mice like a killed, yeah. cat will kill <laughs> that goes outside. But by forcing them inside, we've put them in a really strange environment for them. And by trying to under and and then you get a lot of bad, naughty 
behaviors from cats, but by providing a good indoor environment and understanding cat behavior, we actually can make their lives better. We in turn make our lives better because they're great companions. Same with dogs and for sure, same with horses. So our focus, interestingly, the last couple of years, we've made some pretty big inroads in addressing those. And you asked about something that has real world implications. And it reminded me, if you guys have ever been, everybody's been to like Petco or PetSmart, you yeah. know, or the shelter <laughs> and you know, the cages for cats with the tubes yep. in between them and the boxes and stuff. We had a hand in designing that. Really? Because somebody came to us with that idea and said, nobody will fund me. And I want to make these crazy tubes between cages because I think it'll be better for cats. And we had a campaign a few years ago now that was really focused on just welfare and general health, right? So not necessarily disease specific. And that was one of the ideas. So we were able to help fund those very early studies on looking at square footage for cats, hiding spaces, and the tubes in between areas. And so when you go in, that's one thing that we were able to help come about. Now, every time your cat's in a tube, you can think yep. Morris Animal Foundation. Exactly. <laughs> when you go into the shelters, because people wouldn't fund this person. They're like, that's nuts. Why would you want to redesign the cages? They're fine. And they weren't fine, right? And it really helps cats' behavior and mental well-being if they're going to be in that situation. How can we optimize it? Yeah, definitely. You mentioned the the Golden Retriever Cancer Study. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. And then some of the other things that, you know, you're working on at Morris. What are some of the things that are unanswered questions that you're trying to, to look into? Yeah. So the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is a study that's now in its 11th year. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And we're following 3,044 golden retrievers for their lifetime. The reason we picked goldens, first of all, there's a lot of them, and we needed yep. 3,000 <laughs> of a certain age, and people willing to do jump through the hoops they have to jump through every year for the study. The other is goldens have a really high rate of cancer, unfortunately, as a breed. And a lot of goldens die of cancer-related illness. We wanted to know why. And particularly what are risk factors, because I think all of us as pet parents go, what can I do to avoid exposures? We would do it for ourselves, right? Like, what can I avoid, like smoking, that is a, a risk factor for cancer? We're collecting data on that and have started to now analyze that data because we have enough dogs, unfortunately. After 10 years, a lot of them have died of cancer. In fact, of our deaths, 75% are cancer-related, which is actually higher than what's reported for the general golden population. So it may actually be higher than we actually realized. The other one that we're going to, we just are launching now is a deep, deep, deep dive and a lot of funds thrown at hemangiosarcoma, which is the number one cancer that our goldens are dying from in our study. But it's a really bad cancer in dogs. It's aggressive. It almost is uniformly fatal. It strikes fast. It's expensive to deal with. It's a horrible cancer for people who um, have to deal with it because it's one of those like, my dog was playing in the yard and just collapsed and is now dead. 
it's that kind of cancer. It's really um, tragic and really scary. And we are going to fundraise around it beginning in 2023. It's going to be a big initiative sort of wrapped up with our 75th anniversary. It is something that people can use. We'll offer our samples from the study, but they don't have to use it. They could come to us with ideas. We're looking at raising several million dollars multi-year to try to get an answer. Hemangiosarcoma, we haven't made any inroads in early diagnosis or treatment in 30 years. And it's not for people not trying. Um, People have. But um, we're hoping that by putting a real concentrated effort and a lot of funding, we can finally really move the needle on that cancer. Well, I hope that people get involved and money gets raised and you get some answers to these questions. This has been so helpful, so informative, so educational. Um, I want to give some time for you to to let listeners know how can they get involved? How can they, you know, get involved with Morris? How can they donate? How can they participate in a study? What are some ways that they can learn more about what you're doing or get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to morrisanimalfoundation.org, that's our website, and we've got all kinds of stuff there. So we have information, you know, our blogs, we have a podcast as well that we deal with lots of lots of different issues usually featuring one of our funded researchers. You can go to that. It has all different kinds of ways to donate. Obviously, that's going to be on the page because that's our whole jam, (laughs) which is really raising money and then giving it away. You can find out about a little bit more detail about the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study and some of the publications that are come out, some of the nested, which is what we call the studies under the study. Those are all available. If you want to get involved in a study yourself and you don't have a golden retriever. There are a couple different things. We're going to launch a citizen pet, which is be like getting information and sharing it with potential researchers if you'd want to be in a study. There is another project called the Dog Aging Project, which is really, really enormous. And they'll take all dogs, any age, anytime. You just sign up and you fill out. They have all different arms. They have probably over 50,000 dogs now in that study. And my dog is in that because she's a Labrador. So she couldn't be in Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, but she can be in the Dog Aging Project. And they're collecting data on dogs. They're also doing, as the study implies, they're super interested in aging. They have an arm of the study where you can participate in a placebo or an anti-aging drug, a drug that's supposed to decrease aging. My dog is in that study. I don't know if she's getting placebo or not, (laughs) but it's something like that if your dog qualifies, they have to be a little older, but healthy, they can go into that arm of the study as well. And that they're taking all comers. So again, big dogs, little dogs, mixed breed dogs, all different kinds. And we were helped set up that study. We provided some information. So we're really proud that one of the things that the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study has done is prompted other people to know that they can do these kinds of studies and that people want to participate. And again, when we get our citizen pet, that's our new platform, up and running. We'll also be collecting data. And part of the data that we will be collecting is people who say, sure, I'm kind of interested in a study. I have a 
boxer or a rat terrier or a Scotty or a Westie, and I would be willing. And then we are advertising to researchers, hey, if you want, you can come to us and we'll poke through our database and find people maybe that would qualify for studies. Nice. I love it. There's one more very important question I have for you before we wrap, and that is, if you could be any animal in the world, what would you be and why? Oh, totally a tiger. So that's, <laughs> did that come out really fast? Yeah, you were ready for that one. <laughs> I love tigers, always did from the time I was a kid. I love it. You've been listening to Life with Pets, the show that combines real pet stories with proven guidance from pet professionals. I'm your host, Hillary Georgie, and I hope this show has been a great resource for you as a pet parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to download the Buddies app. This episode was produced by the team at Mission.org. Mission.org.